Next Chapter Podcast. The 500. The 500. J.A.M. been walking us down through that 2012 edition, so it ain't nothing to you. Hundreds more to go and in need of a friend. The king of peace for Angelo. Talking the 500 until the end. Talking the 500 until the end. With my man J.M. On the 500. Talking the 500 until the end. How do you think it feels? When you're speeding and lonely Come here, baby How do you think it feels When all you can say is if only Holy shit This is one of the most depressing albums You will ever hear In your whole fucking The song is How Do You Think It Feels? It's by Lou Reed from his 1973 record, Berlin. It's also number 344 out of 500 on the 500 with Josh Adam Myers. What's up, Fleece Army? Oh, you didn't know? You're part of the Fleece Army now because you're listening to this. Uh, I am in Mexico. I just left from Mexico. I'm doing JFL Escapes Uh, on Sunday. I will be at Skankfest in Houston, and then next month I will be in Texas, I will be in St. Louis, and I will be in Vancouver. And you can get all of that on my website, guys. Uh, Join the Patreon. So as you know, we're gonna be reading your comments about the record on the podcast. We're gonna do these two episodes, we're gonna start stacking them up. We will be starting with Depeche Mode Violator on down. So then you'll have Moby, Black Flag, Tom Waits, I want to know what you thought about this record. And if you join the Patreon for $5 or more a month, we will read your comment and your question to the guest. So you can now be even more a part of the podcast than ever before. That's what we're doing. It's awesome. Tell us what you think. Patreon.com backslash the 500 podcast. And you can watch the videos on our YouTube. But follow me at Josh Adam Myers on all social media media tom rhodes is my guest for lou reed berlin this is a sad record and tom is a huge lou reed fan i love tom i think tom is uh one of my favorite comics to watch i think he's one of the most creative comedians uh in the world and uh he's a fucking legend and uh i couldn't be more stoked uh, to have him on he's also got a record out right now. Tom's new record, The Honky Motherland. It was recorded in front of live audiences at England, Scotland, and Wales and Ireland. Uh, You can get it from him by DMing him on all social media. It's at underscore Tom Rhodes, T-O-M-R-H-O-D-E-S. Get his record. He's a genius. All right, here's the stats. Rate, review, and most importantly, subscribe to The 500 and listen free on all platforms or anywhere you get your podcast. Oh, shit! Uh, November 15th, Uh, The Goddamn Comedy Jam will be back at the Village Underground November 15th on my birthday. Well, my birthday is the 14th. 
November 15th, we're doing the goddamn Comedy Jam, live streaming it to the world. 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, 7 p.m. West Coast Time. I don't know what the time is in Scotland. I know I got some fans out there. So watch it. Go to mintcomedy.com to live stream the jam. To all the people that saw it before, they realize how dope it is. I want to see all of you. The goddamn Comedy Jam, November 15th, live from the Village Underground at the Comedy Cellar, 10 p.m. Mintcomedy.com. Follow me at Josh Adam Myers on all social media. Email the podcast at 500podcast at gmail.com. Follow the Facebook group run by Crazy Evan. And for all things 500, go to our website, the500podcast.com. Well, here we go. 344 out of 5, Berlin by Lou Reed. Tommy. Hey, my brother. What's up, my brother? How are you, man? Chilling, man. Chilling. Thank you for for fucking doing this, man. Because uh, I know you had to move some shit around. So yeah, man, that's cool. Uh, I was gonna film some shit, but I'm gonna I'll do it later today. Yeah, you know, all right, you don't got to go all Kubrick on me, okay? You know, <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, it's funny because I thought about it. No, my first thought was, well, I I had shit booked, and then I thought, I don't know that album that well. And then, and then, and then I like, cause I was in Austin, Texas. And then, and then I, I thought for a minute, I thought, you know what? Lou Reed is my fucking dude. And yeah. uh, I'm a huge fan. So um, why wouldn't I do this with you? So well, then, here, then here, let's just dive in because I like how that all just went. So tell me how you became a fan of Lou Reed. Like, where did it start? I think we're right. You're a little bit older than me, but like I was born in 79. So I feel like I missed when he was at his like coolest. You know what I mean? So for me, it's always been like, he's just one of those dudes that you keep hearing about throughout the history of music. And everybody's like, Oh my God, I wouldn't be where I am if it wasn't for the velvet underground or this band or that band. Yeah. Um, I think my actual first real like digging into Lou Reed was from the train spotting soundtrack from perfect day, which I love but yeah. it's not on this record, but right, you, yeah, you tell yeah, me you know, when he died, that that was the song that people were playing over and over everywhere. I mean, it's, it's, it's sad as fuck. And it's about a perfect day. And you're like, this is, <laughs> this is a shit day, dude. Your life. If this is perfect, good God. <laughs> I need to hear about sad. So tell me, tell me your, tell me your story with Lou Reed. How did it start? I, I, I you know, I first fell in love with Lou Reed with the Velvet Underground. Always been a huge music freak. Uh, it's always fueled me, especially traveling on the road, driving all over when I started out as a comedian. Uh, Waiting for the Man, I think, was the song that first made me a, a Lou Reed fan. And then I got really heavy into uh, the Velvet Underground. And then I lived in New York City when I was 20, uh, yeah. like a dog. I was broke and I lived in Washington Heights it was 1987 as crack was coming to the neighborhood. Yeah, uh, dude. So where I lived on Cabrini Boulevard, there'd be gunshots at night. And in the in the morning, there'd be uh, uh, smoldering, burned out cars. People would steal cars in lower Manhattan and drive them up there and just set them on fire. So I know there's like a big renaissance with Washington Heights now with Manuel Lynn Miranda and all that, um, you know. Uh, yeah, dude, it's a musical up there every day. Yeah, you go up there and people like, are like, when, go into the bodega, the to the bodega. When I Crack lived head. there, it was all I could afford. And it was really, really a dangerous, tough place. So uh, 
the new the Lou Reed album New York came out. Uh, I think '89 or something, and so it really uh, it, it really hit me, and I really thought, you know, my experience in New York, the the New York the Lou Reed the New York album. Yeah, uh, I got all my. Here's my vinyl. Fuck yeah, Ooh. dude. That's my oh yeah, you're yeah you're you're <laughs> yeah. legit. And then here's my my Lou on. Uh, on, on CD. On CD. Now show yeah, me the show me the MP3s. Now I want to see. <laughs> put your screen on. I want to see your iTunes. <laughs> you know, like the just the the grittiness of the of the Lou Reed album. I remember, uh, uh, or the New York album, uh, the the song "Dirty Boulevard." You know, and it's about the kid and his father beats him on the legs with a coat hanger, and uh, he finds a book on magic in the garbage. And he lies in bed and he looks at the ceiling and he says, at the count of three, I wish I could uh, disappear and fly, fly away. Nice. It's just, it's just the, the grittiness of it I related to from, oh, my God. And then the um, the song Straw Man has got one of the, what a, what a, what a, what a, just a balls out ass kicking song that is. And it's got one of the greatest lines in rock and roll history. He says, uh, does anybody need another politician caught with his pants down and money sticking out his hole? <laughs> so the yeah. answer to that, the answer to that, no. no. But we're <laughs> gonna get more. We're gonna get more. Of apparently, them. we never get tired of that. We never. We seem to really <laughs> like those guys. Speaking of which, dude, because I don't know if you know, I'm actually I live in New York now. I mean, I'm bi coastal. Um, but, uh, I live in Gramercy and I swear to God, I walked into a CVS and as I was walking in, walking out, I'm almost positive was Anthony Weiner. Do you guys know Anthony Weiner? He's the dude that, that Lou Reed foreshadowed in that song. His dick was, he took like a bunch, he's just, he's the reason I think Trump became president because like the whole I mean, like, I think, I think thing. Right. I think that did have a lot to do with it. Cause he, yeah. He, uh, you know, when he first came out, he was like this, you know, like he's he's a, he's a badass lefty being tough on the yeah. on the uh, the floor. And then what, what a dirt bag he turned out. To be. And, you know, his his wife. Yeah, that's there him. You there you go. He's he's uh, not in bad shape. Nah, but what a, you know, what it, it, it kills me. Uh, his wife's a hottie. And like, you know, yeah. how hard it is to find an intelligent Hot uh, woman, you know, power broker woman, hottie. I mean, the guy had it all, and and he's a really goofy looking bastard. So yeah, um, I didn't know. say anything to him though. I wish I would have just. I wish I would have like double checked. Oh, yeah, she is hot. Yeah, but he's not. He's not bad looking, but he's definitely. He's definitely a hand job. You can tell. Look at that. Well, I mean, <laughs> she was definitely. Uh, <laughs> you know, he was punching above his weight. Definitely. And that he was like texting somebody and he had like a boner and like there was a kid next to him. Uh, oh, uh, <laughs> oh, God. Scandalous. Really I mean, That's, that guy, he went down hard. He went down like, hard. Like his dad. You running in, you seeing him at CVS uh, re reminds me. I, um, after I left New York, yeah. a good friend of mine lived on the Upper West Side. Uh, and this is like 89, 90. And when I would go to New York after I had lived there, I would stay and sleep on my friend's couch. Mm -hmm. And he lived on the 18th floor of this building. And Lou Reed lived on the 16th floor of this building. And I rode on an elevator once with Lou Reed. Just, Whoa. just he and I alone. And, and, and 
Did I you am, say something? I am such a huge Lou Reed fan. Yeah. Didn't say a word to the guy. No. What am I going to say? Hey, all right. I told, I've told this story. Adam, correct me because I've how many times I've told my dad meeting Miles Davis story. Oh, I love your Miles Davis. Since I've joined the show. This is probably the third or fourth Thank time, you. but it's a good story. Uh, I got to tell it. I've got to tell it because this is how you do it, Tom. It's the third or fourth time. Fuck, there's a listener like, come on, Josh. My dad's, it's like the 70s. My dad gets on an elevator of the Four Seasons, and on that elevator is Miles Davis. And Miles Davis is dressed in full Miles Davis 70s. He's got a boa, the big bug-eyed glasses. And my dad immediately knows it's Miles, and my dad's a huge jazz fan. So my dad, you know, it's just them. He goes, hey, man, uh, you're Miles Davis. And Miles goes, nah, man. And so my dad's like, oh, okay. So he doesn't want to be bothered. So they go down a couple floors. My dad's about to get off. And my dad goes, right before he walks off, turns around and goes, hey, man, I know you're not Miles Davis, but if you run into Miles Davis, <laughs> can you let him know that I really dig his music? And Miles pulls his glasses down to like right on the crook of his nose and goes, thank you, baby. And then that's it. And that's oh, how you yeah. do it. That's how you do it. I love Miles. There's, uh, I think everyone in show business should read Miles Davis's autobiography, Miles. Have you ever yeah. read it? Yeah, uh huh. It's great. It's uh, phenomenal. It's not important the notes that you play. What's more important is the notes that you don't play. That's stand up comedy. That's yeah. literally, that's literally yeah. how to get the, the fucking shit. Yeah, how to fucking get that audience just in the palm of your hand and just to be like, it's not even about what you're saying. It's those moments of silence. That's what builds the joke. And it's like, it's it's great. I've gotten so much good advice from comics out here. Obviously, you know Greer Barnes, right? Oh, I love Greer. Yeah, what a what a master of uh, of the craft. He no, hundred percent. And I'd be able to watch him, and then to get notes from him, and like he's because he's really been a big guy in my corner at the cellar, and and just like he'll watch my set and he'll get off, and he'll just be like, and he'll he'll just he pumps you up, but gives you that advice that it's like that literally is like you set the tone. You have control of that stage. Don't let that audience dictate anything. If you, if you, if you want to be silent for 10 seconds, be silent. It's your shit. And it's like, it's those moments where you're like, yeah, man, like you, 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 you forget that you, it's like, we always have to be like, ah, gah, gah, gah. But it's like, dude, it's, this is an art form and we can play it however we want to. And yeah. I love it. I've known Greer for so long. He, he always, um, he, uh, he always gives me love advice. <laughs> really well like i mean we always end up talking about relationships and and stuff he and i always seem to be um struggling in that area at the same time um you know uh listening to each other's sets <laughs> but you know uh that miles davis autobiography there's a harper's index fact about that book uh because it's his autobiography it's in his words yeah. uh the, the word motherfucker appears 333 times in that God, book. That's a lot, dude. I love it. He's ta- he'll be telling a story about Ch- Charlie Parker and go, and then the motherfucker did this. And then the motherfucker did this. Well, you know that he probably didn't even, it was probably a guy dictating it the yeah. whole time. It was just Miles talking, probably I'm drinking a cup of tea. The vernacular. Oh, God. He, the coolest dude that I live. But, I, but here's the thing, is that the more I find out about Lou Reed, I'm finding out him to be one of the coolest motherfuckers that's Absolutely. ever lived. You know, the, 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 the literary um, uh, aspect he brought to songwriting, I, I think is why he's um, such an enduring uh, hero to look up to. You know, I mean, like, look at that, that, that Berlin album. 
Um, so I've listened to it three times in the last couple of days. I mean, love it, that everything domestic violence, uh, you know, suicide, heroin addiction. Uh, Caroline had so much to say. Uh, it, it spilled into two songs. And uh, <laughs> I, I love that line. Uh, she was making it with with brothers uh, and sisters and they're taking her kids away. Um, yeah. What's the. Adam, pull the lyric up while he's looking. Adam made a and good then, point. And then the song, uh, yeah, and then, uh, that miserable, rotten slut, it, 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 you know, she's just having a good time. She sounds like a fun person. <laughs> and they, they, they're, they're taking her, her children away. And then the, right. the Caroline 2 ends with the sound of the, the baby crying. And, yeah. Mommy. Yeah, I this mean, is. Like, what a, what a, a, a sonic experimental uh beautiful canvas he did with that song hello it is ryan and i was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com i looked over the person sitting next to me and you know what they were doing they were also playing chumba casino coincidence i think not everybody's loving having fun with it chumba casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Ever wonder what a punch from Elton John feels like? Or how you'd cope with having turned down the chance to be in Nirvana? Or what signal Keith Richards gives when he wants you to get the hell out of his hotel room? Fans of Too Much Effie Perspective don't have to wonder because they've heard these exact stories and a jillion others on our podcast. I'm Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for Radiohead. And I'm musician and comedy writer Alan Keller. On the TMEP show, we get guests like Nancy Wilson from Heart, Jeremiah Freights from the Lumineers, and Modern Family's Julie Bowen to tell us things they may have only shared with their therapist, clergy, or a TMZ stringer. So join us on Too Much Effing Perspective. That's E-F-F-I-N-G Perspective. The only podcast you crank up to 11. So, so being that this is so grim, I mean, because I'm, I, it, I'm very moody. It's depending on when it comes to the the sad music that I listen to. Like, I'm a huge fan of Radiohead, but I can't listen to them all the time because they definitely paint a very dark uh, canvas of what the world is like in technology and this that. I mean, are you attracted to dark subject matter generally, or is this kind of like a case by case situation? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's case by case. You know, I mean. I, I, that's probably why I never got into that 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 Berlin album. Yeah, it's uh, sad, dude. Because it's it, there's a lot of slow songs and uh, a lot of heavy subject matter. But then again, diving into it, you know, I'm a huge Lou Reed fan. I didn't really know this song, Oh Jim, until yeah, the a good last one. couple. What a what a great song that is. Yeah, there's there's it's funny that because Adam prepped me on this where Adam that's Adam above you the little guy who looks like he's in a comic book looks like he's in a baseball card shop um with some weird lizard behind him I have no idea what the fuck you have Hank Aaron oh dude that's a good one that's a good one uh I might have my Mike Schmidt rookie card laying around somewhere that's basically the only card I still have that and a George Murison the seven foot seven uh Washington bullet that was in the movie my giant with Billy Crystal, I had a signed poster uh, of both of them. That being said, totally pointless. 
there's there's so i i i don't know if you're like me but i take the energy of whatever art is in front of me so if i saw when i saw requiem for a dream i immediately afterwards was like depressed for three days because it was such a bleak movie this record you know what's funny adam because you told me how depressing it was be the on just first listen i didn't even really pay attention so much to the lyrics so i didn't realize how sad and how dark this was it wasn't until the third and fourth listen that i was like oh yeah dude this is like really fucking depressing even the songs that sound positive are just gut-wrenching but i think that's what's beautiful about this you know because it's and listen it's not my favorite record that I've done so far on this podcast, but by, but like to set the mood of walking around New York city, I know this was written in Berlin, but this could have been New York. This could have been, you know, like a bad part of Chicago could have been, you've listened to this in Baltimore in certain sections. And it's almost like the soundtrack for what you're seeing uh, around me. So I mean, you obviously, cause you were in Austin. I mean, how did that like affect you listening to this record, especially in a town like Austin's a little bit like until you get to like Sixth Street at like two in the morning, it's fucking. You know what I mean? Well, I was going to comedy festival and I was all there. I was there. You know, it was pretty wild. Um, and I was up late, <clears throat> so I mean, I listened to it in my hotel room. I didn't, you know, walk. And then I listened to it flying back. And then I listened to it. Um, uh, I, I listened to it last night. I saw Danzig do a night of Elvis songs last night for Halloween. Oh, God, I, I heard about that. How was that, dude? How is that? <laughs> it was cool, man, but um, everybody was dressed up like heavy metal Danzig fans. Uh, how embarrassing. Everyone had the same costume. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, um, what are you supposed to dress like at a Danzig concert, bro? You're supposed to... It was okay. I mean, uh, you know, I, I enjoy Elvis songs, so I, I enjoyed it. But then I, I, so I came home last night, listened to Berlin again, and then I listened to it um, again this morning. And like I said, I'm a huge Lou Reed fan, but like that album, I had never, all the songs on it, I knew from greatest hits compilations and uh, Lou Reed essential albums and stuff. So, um, you know, the, you know, like he, I, I love the fact that he was so into, you know, I love, I love, some music. I'll show you my. This is this is my apartment. Okay. Oh my God. Yeah, dude. This you are. Right. Fuck it. You are. These my vinyl records. Wow, dude. You no, know, I, 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 I still got cassettes. Nice suitcase. I still got my massive <laughs> uh, travel pro baby. You yeah, dude. Yeah, <laughs> all over the world. Um, you know, I love the fact that he was so. You know, he, he came from a liter uh, a literary tradition, and yeah. that he, you know, was inspired by like Burroughs and Kerouac, and just uh, just gritty writers capturing realism. You know, and 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 I love Lou Reed's story, and you know, he was like such a sassy bitch uh, nice. in the Warhol scene. With I mean, he really was like kind of like the 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 evil shit stirrer gay guy you know and then his his he had a trans girlfriend named rachel uh you know and he's doing heroin back in those days but if you go further back in lou reed's life he first started recording oh yeah and when you know and then he was because he was uh gay or bisexual his parents actually um disowned him 
no, they sent him to electric shock therapy. Oh, the dude, like I think when he was a late teen, before he got hanging in with the velvet, uh, you know, the the Warho um, scene and the Velvet Underground. Yeah, you know, he had gone through electric shock therapy. That's what they would do to people back then to to ungay them. So. Uh, imagine the mental stress that that that, that uh, would cause you. But before that, he had a job where like if surf music was popular or whatever the music was popular, they would make these knockoff records. They would sell cheaply in record stores and stuff where yeah. uh, like if it was the Beatles or surf music or whatever. So they would do little like parody songs or copy songs of these things. And the thing that he says in... Uh, his biographies that, you know, it, it was, a, it was, it was total shit music. He was ashamed of, but what it taught him was how to be um, uh, economical in the recording studio, how not to waste studio time. Mm -hmm. So I like those two elements together. The fact that, you know, that earliest part of his musical career caught him how to taught him how to record and that he brought in all these these literary influences and the you know who was doing that in 68 69 70 <clears throat> writing about um you know trans prostitutes and heroin and um no one you, know, you interracial yeah, relationships I, in uh in the grittiness of new york well i i you know i obviously listening to Lou Reed, even the Velvet Underground, it's like what I don't think as a, and me being, like I said, I am, I am, this is my first Lou Reed record I've ever listened to from start to finish. It's like, I, you know, I think what is attracting people to this music, it can't be his voice. I mean, the guy's not the greatest singer. It's the substance and the soul and the characters that he writes. And, the, and the, this, this, like you said, this, it's poetry. It's you're listening to a dark, poet he's like the edgar Allan poe of fucking music and it's it's very attractive when you listen or talk to somebody that is smart i mean you know it you'll have a conversation with some dude at a, at a fucking bar and, and they're saying stuff that's like oh like this guy's you know he knows what he's talking about it could be about sports or life or politics and then you dive into a conversation we're attracted to mental strength and like obviously he is extremely well read i mean and i think that's also the parallel why you're so so popular and why you're such a great comic is because you you've lived you have life experience you have books up the wazoo that obviously you read and people are attracted to that and it's like they know when you're on stage they're like oh this guy knows what the fuck he's talking about well, so let's go with him you know and then you know the the, the life experience is the best thing you yeah. have as a comedian, you get more stories. And with Lou Reed, I, I love the evolution of his life. The way, you know, the way, uh, you know, he went from that, you know, he could have stayed that that person and died of a heroin overdose early. And then, uh, you know, later in life, uh, what, what was the woman he was with? Was it Laurie Anderson? Find out, Adam, find out who he was with. Was he married to um, late in his life? And, and they got heavy and did Tai Chi. <laughs> you know, the, like the end of his life, he's he's being healthy and 
doing Tai Chi obsessed with it and everything. Was Laurie Anderson. It was Laurie. But dude, that's what we all do, Tom. That's what we all do, man. We do fucking fentanyl for 16 years <laughs> and then we go to juice bars and eat reshi. I'll show you something fucking... cool that I have because I, I love when I travel, you know, I love going to used bookstores and I love going to used record stores. What'd you score? And uh, this, I found this, I found this earlier this year at that? a record store in Vegas. And it was recorded at the bottom line in Greenwich Village, 1994. Uh, historic once in a lifetime set in the winter of 1994. Um, and it, it's him and Chris, it's an evening with him and Chris Christofferson. And it's so fantastic. So they're, they're talking about, and they're on stage together. And they're, they both have like infinite respect for each other. Yeah. And, 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 and talking about each other's um, uh, songwriting ability and they're breaking down songs and everything. And, uh, and then at the end of the show, uh, they each get to perform. And then, 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 then they're each performing their songs on acoustic between the uh, the banter and the interviewing each other. And at the end of the, the concert, they each get to play a song that they wish they had written, uh, a song that they loved the most. And um, Lou Reed does Tears of a Clown. And he talks about why that's, before he goes into it, he goes, why that's such a, a perfect song and, uh, and, and what the lyrics meant to him. Is you're talking the Tears of a Clown, is that Okay, then I was right. Oh wow. Well maybe maybe it's because like it's the exact opposite of what his music is, you know. I think that people, you know, you, you always find like dude, like the guy that directed uh, you know, Road Warrior and all the Mad Max movies also, you know, made Pig, a babe about the pig. So oh. I mean, people people are into you know, it's it's not always just on the surface. It's gonna be the dark ship, and then, the, you know, the kind of a little bit of love. Was identical to my story with New York City. You know, I mean, the the pig was unaccustomed to the environment. Uh, yeah, he got a lot of trouble. He doesn't have much money. <laughs> then you win a fucking contest of, of sheep herding, and next thing you know, <laughs> you go. You're huge in Europe. Um, no, I, I, I think, you know, I definitely think there's something about like, you can't just, you know, enjoy like dark shit all the time. Even if you are a dark person, there's gotta be some sort of light, you know? Yeah. Um, so let's, let's find out a little bit about this record and where he was at, uh, that Adam put together for us. Thank you, Adam. So this is Reed's third studio, uh, solo studio record. It came out in October, 1973. Sorry to interrupt. Um, I think this album started the Berlin sabbatical collaborations where uh, Lou Reed, David Bowie, and Iggy Pop all went to Berlin on sabbaticals, creative sabbaticals, and each produced an album from that experience. And I, I, I think Lou Reed uh, started that with this album, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. Uh, Adam, if you want to check that out, uh, I'm pretty sure you're probably right about what you're saying. So from um, what I'm seeing here, it says that uh, Bowie arrived in Berlin in 1976. So this might have postdated that just a little bit. Well, this one was 73, right? right? This is 73. Yeah, this is 73. Yeah. So yeah. This, this started the, hey, let's go to Berlin and take time off and right. Right. Uh, make a record out of it. 
So, so what I have is this is a concept album, rock opera that tells the story about a couple struggle named Jim and Caroline, but really about Lou and his then wife, uh, Betty Kronstad with a drug addiction. The album was not initially well received. Rolling Stone called it a disaster when it came out, but this is aged like a fine wine. I believe that. Uh, the concept was created when producer Bob Ezrin mentioned to Lou Reed that although the stories told by Reed's songs had great beginnings, they never really had an ending. Specifically, Ezrin wanted to know what happened to the couple from Berlin, a song from Reed's first solo album. Oh, I didn't know that was a that was a track. So this is all right. So this is like the Lord of the Rings uh, about heroin addicts. The session band included Jack Bruce from Cream, Steve Winwood, uh, Ansley Dunbar, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame member, and there's too many other artists to name, and Tony Le Levin uh, from Peter Gabriel and King Crimson. Uh, Reed does not play electric guitar on this album. This has been described as one of the most depressing albums of all time. Wow. <laughs> How did I not get it on the first listen? I have no idea why I was, I was like, this is great. I was like, Caroline sounds awesome. Uh, despite the conceptual idea behind Berlin, the album still hit too close to Reed. He did not listen to the album for years to come after the release. Um, and Berlin reached number seven on the UK album chart, reads best achievement uh, there until 1992's Magic and Loss. Poor sales in the US only got to number 98, and harsh criticism made Reed feel disillusioned about the record. The album was included in the book, 1001 Albums You Must Hear Before You Die. And the last little, little nugget of fact I have, the reason for naming this album Berlin had nothing to do with the city itself. In fact, Reed never even visited the city. He said, I love the idea of a divided city. Reed famously stated it was purely metaphorical. He once commented. Speaking of. Oh, so he didn't he didn't go there and he did and not. Oh, but so. but but let me ask you something, because from you are you have this following in Europe. How did that start? Like, how did you suddenly like you're because you're from everything I know about you, you're you're. You're, you're just, you're an American comic. And yet you just, I always see you over in Europe. So do you go there for inspiration? Like how did it start and why do you, you know, tell me. I had lived in New York city like a dog when I was 20 years old, like I was saying in Washington Heights. And I always swore if I ever had any money, I'd live there with style. So I had a sitcom uh, on NBC 1996 to 1997. Uh, it, 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 was, it was a mildly frustrating experience, but when it was finished, I had a truckload of money. So I looked at that money as my NBC artist grant. And I moved back to New York City, 98 to 2000. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and then that's when I, I got in with the Comedy Cellar and, uh, and I, I was just focused on uh, stand-up. Um, I was partying a lot with Mitch Hedberg and, and Dave Attell at the time. It, 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 it was a very fun period. Oh, I could imagine, But man. also, uh, my very good oldest friend in comedy, Rich Hall, lived in London. And he thought that I did uh, uh, smart comedy, and he thought that I would do well there. So in that period, uh, about 1998, I, I uh, with my artist grant money living in New York, I started, I would fly over to London 
and uh, and Rich Hall coached me like you don't go to the best clubs first. You know, you get your sea legs first in the peripheral rooms and then you go to the best clubs, which is what I did. And so I got in with London and then uh, I think after a couple trips there in 98 and then 99, I started playing in London and then I would uh, I, I was playing in London a lot. And then that led to gigs around England and then all over Europe. And uh, I played in Amsterdam and fell in love with a Dutch woman. And then I moved to Amsterdam for five years. That relationship didn't work out um, after two years, but then miraculously, I uh, I got a late night talk show on Dutch television. They were looking for an American to host a late night talk show, and um, and and they saw me performing at a club in Amsterdam. Nice. So so I got to live in Amsterdam for five years, and then I was playing all over Europe, and then I think London was the key to the international circuits for me. Uh, once I got in with London, that led to gigs all over Europe, uh, comedy festivals in Australia and Asia, New Zealand. And, uh, and, and that's, you know, that's basically how it, it happened. Before I moved to L.A. six years ago, I, I did not live anywhere for 10 years. I would just um, uh, I had everything in storage and every year I would do like three or four months uh, playing in Europe, do a month in Australia, a month in Asia, and then, yeah, you know, months all over the U.S. and Canada. And then when I had weeks off, I would Airbnb in uh, Rome or Bali or New Orleans or wherever I was at. How did you feel like your writing changed from being over there? I mean, it's great because you know you're you're living all these different experiences. You know, yeah, it's not like being on the road in in the States where you've, you know, you've been to cities, you know, 20 times and you're, you know, it, it, I love having comedian friends in cities all over the world. Uh, like in Austin last weekend, I hadn't been there in five or six years. I saw these beautiful lunatics in the, yeah. in the comedy scene that I love there. So I, I've got friends all over the world and, uh, you know, and that's the, the fun part. And then, you know, when you're in when you're in Berlin or Paris, the comedians that live there want to show you the best things that their city has to offer. You know, so you're, you're living different experiences. And I, I love knowledge. I love books. When I go to countries, I love, you know, doing a deep dive and reading everything I can about history and interesting facts and um, coming up with jokes that, um, you know, the average person's not going to be writing if you're just limited to the states where's your where's your favorite place in in all of the world that you've been uh i, mean, I love paris really yeah you know, it's just yeah so I, I, love, I love paris I, I love amsterdam uh i never i did i tell you I, I did not like berlin the first time i went there really tell like me. when i first time i went to berlin was 2002 and <laughs> the iraq war was raging and they just uh just they they it was a really anti-american vibe uh, i felt to the audience that i performed to uh, but also it was a weird gig all the comedians were in were doing it in german and i was the only one in english yeah and i remember that and then comedy was kind of in its infancy in 2001 2002 in berlin and um uh i, I remember this comedians on stage killing and this german guy comedian next to me uh, 
he spoke English. I go, well, what's he talking about? He goes, oh, this, oh, I wish I had written this. It's about his father farting. And then like five minutes later, the guy's like killing like you've never, ever seen something. And I go, okay, what's he talking about now? He goes, oh, God, I wish I had written this one too. It's about his grandfather farting. <laughs> so I went back to Berlin four years ago. There's a great English language comedy scene. <clears throat> it would be a great place to move to now if you were a developing comedian. There's so many English language um, open mics, lots of ex expat internationals living yeah. there. And I, I played there like four years ago and I loved it. And I had, I had, again, I had a comedian showing me around the city. I saw things I, I didn't see the first time. And the first time I was there was winter. It was kind of miserable. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and it's a great fashion city. I bought a lot of really cool clothes there. I had, um, <laughs> you know, had, had great shows, great experiences. And, um, you know, the grocery stores, there's like one aisle that's all sausages. Really, they, they, they like sausages. <laughs> they love sausages, man. Spetzel and sausages. There's a great uh, German place that's like two <clears throat> blocks away from me on Third Avenue that I keep I keep walking by and it just it smells so good. And I just like, I got to go there. I love German food. But also, I would never associate that place with comedy. I would associate this place, that like Germany with this sad, depressing record. Yeah. Because that's basically... Like the like the there there used to be that Beck commercial I think it was Beck's beer where it was like you know this is German stand up comedy and it was just like the most dry yeah. shitty like joke and just you know I I can't I can't remember what it was but it was like it was just you know like we don't do comedy but we do do beer Beck's I remember, beer I remember that I remember yeah that. it was really funny Hey this is Dewey Halpas host of Peer Pleasure on the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Join me each week as I explore another long-form conversation with one of your favorite musicians, actors, comedians, or creatives. From Chino Moreno of the Deftones, John Gorley of Portugal the Man, to Fat Mike from No Effects, and Ian Mackay from Fugazi and Minor Threat, we go all over the map. From Fallout Boy to Slayer, Peer Pleasure has it all. Check us out now on Sound Talent Media. Welcome to us talking about our podcast for a minute. What's the name of that podcast? That's Axe to Grind. Uh, and right now you're going to be getting a little little taste of it, right down to the shaky microphone and all. <laughs> and my name's Bob. And my name's Patrick. And usually we're joined by Tom. Tom's the best. Tom has a real grown-up job that requires him to be at work. But we talk about decidedly not-so-grown-up things like... Hardcore music and things that people that like hardcore music tend to like. So that could be the latest shows, uh, revisiting classic material, talking about the new classics, um, all the little dorm room nonsense that you imagine from a niche music podcast that, that you either love, want to love, or hate. Yeah, imagine all the emotions that you have towards a genre that, that uh, has impacted your life uh, and then condense them down to an hour to two hours a week. So triangulate your speakers, think about jumping off the bed, singing along, dancing like an idiot, and listen to Axe for Grind podcast. So, all right, so overall, before we go into some of the tracks, like, you know, how do you rank this record after just listening to it being, you know, being reintroduced to it? 
Like, how do you rank this on Lou Reed's output? Well, like you said, man, it's a really depressing record. Uh, I think it, it fits perfectly the, the vibe of the first time I went to Berlin, where, <laughs> I, where it was winter and I was by myself walking around and I yeah. didn't know anyone or anything. It's not one I would put on um, regularly for a casual listen. Um, so, you know, like when you when you love an artist, uh, I, I mean, you know, if I if I see it in a used record store, and it's ten twenty dollars. I'll I'll grab. You're gonna get it, yeah. Just because I'm a a, a lunatic collector, but <clears throat> I don't know if it would be one that I would I would would put on. Yeah, you know, I kind of agree with that because I listened to this a few times, and then you know, when when your record ends, Dark Lord Spotify then uh, plays more music from that artist. Yeah, and and it put on like a lot of stuff from I think what is it Transformer. And I mean, that is just so brilliant. There's like, it's, you know, there's some that stuff that's set. That opening guitar on, on, on Transformer, it, what, it goes on for eight minutes or something. Just this, just this ripping guitar solo. But it's like, but there's like, I mean, you know, Walk on the Wild Side and Perfect Day. And it's like, there's songs that are like, that have broken through into the music, you know, stratosphere that will be remembered and talked about forever. Speaking of which, I, I gotta say this, uh, so the song Walk on the Wild Side, like I like to sing to my dog. And so I did for like the last like it was her birthday. So over the last week I was like, I was like, hey, Lekka, take a walk on the Lekka side. I said, hey, Lekka, take a walk on the Lekka side. And all the other dogs go, Lekka, 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 Lekka. And I've been doing that. I'm doing it at the dog park. People think I'm fucking nuts. Uh, but that's, that's what it was so good, man. When I hear that song, I just picture like steam coming up from uh, manhole covers in New York. Yeah, it, yeah, it, dude. It really captures the vibe of, of New York City. And and this record, and that's something that you can listen to every fucking day in a in a town like New York. You can't listen to this record every day. Now there's some good songs on it. There's some really good songs, but it's like when it really when you break it down. It's just heart wrenching. So let's go. Let's go into some tracks. I mean, the first one, Berlin. Uh, so it's setting you up. It paints the portrait of two doomed lovers as they holiday in Berlin. Uh, the song is simultaneously deceptively simple and unassuming, foreboding. Even without knowing what will happen next in the Berlin song cycle, it is apparent that the lovers will not be loving for long. Wow. I always thought the beginning of that song had like a strange uh, uh, audio sample with the where it almost sounds like a like someone took a snippet from like a New Year's Eve celebration or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What is that? But then like a few moments later, they start singing happy birthday. It's it it sounds like somebody just grabbed a a piece of audio from um, someone else's party. Yeah, I like mean, it doesn't even feel like it's a party that uh, that these people in the in the song are at. It's like the uh, Shal- it's like the Shalowitz's bar mitzvah. They got they just they just Lou Reed's so like gritty that he's just like sneaking in, like putting the microphone in. There. He's like, this would be perfect for my record to open up Berlin. I would love to see this become a movie. I would love this album to be like written into like a stage play or something. Um, Adam, while we go into the next track, see if you can find out what that snippet was from, uh, that Tom was just talking about. 
All right, Lady Day, great song uh, from Billie Holiday. It's impact from the fate that already is racing to overtake the concept album's female protagonist, Caroline. This gives the details of Caroline's other life, being painted as a low-key, a lady of the night. Oh, I'm sorry, being painted as a low life, a lady of the night, uh, a dancer at bars, an entertainer for lowly figures, a kind of life that Jim, her husband, objects to. You know, speaking of that, I was a DJ at a strip club four years like the reason that i'm still talking to you i'm I'm still the reason that i'm talking to you right now on this podcast the only reason i'm i still have a career is because of the adult entertainment industry and the fact that i have the greatest strip club dj voice in the history of strip club dj voices i really do take my top off just listening to you i mean keep it on keep it on you don't have to do that not not anymore people uh went great the most crazy for was it like girls 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 by no not that i wasn't i wish i was djing in like the late 80s and 90s i by the time that i was a was a wedding well i was a wedding dj too by the time i was a a strip club dj it was like migos it was like drake it was all that shit future because i worked at a very very uh party strip club it was a topless bar in downtown la called dames and games it was like a sports bar slash strip club and so they'd show the games and when the games ended it was just titties and it was just it was not like how you know when i my first strip club dj job when i worked day shift it was darker and i could get away tom with playing like i could get away with playing like walk on the wild side yeah, I could get away with that. I could get away. There would be some really depressing stripper. Maybe I could even do perfect day. But it was like you once you got to that nighttime thing, it was all hip hop. And if I ever fit in a rock song like the audience would be like would kind of like everybody would stop and like, look at me. And that was what was fucked up was that the GM and not even GM, the corporate Spearman Rhino corporate, they wanted they wanted a mix of music. And I would tell them I'd be like, there's nobody in here that wants to listen to rock nobody it's like the girls get mad at me it kills the mood and so every i had to play one rock song every four every three to four songs and it just like well, it was terrible it was terrible um <clears throat> i've been doing a i've been doing um this line it's funny the people that get upset by this line um but i've been dating a younger woman from toronto nice and she's really into hip-hop and she really loves drake so I've been listening to a lot of Drake, trying to get into Drake, but I can't get into Drake because Drake writes songs for guys who cry in the shower. That's true. And it's true. Uh, my girlfriend is Muslim. And here's the trickiest part of the relationship. What's that? Her father is a big fan of the band Rush. Listen, I'll convert to Islam, but I'm not pretending I like fucking Rush. <laughs> <laughs> and there's oh. always like... <laughs> Anytime I, I haven't done that that line as much um, anymore, um, but it's funny the there's always one rush guy in the crowd. No, really? And like I feel like I feel like the dude is like a fan of mine, and then he's like yeah. upset. I don't like Rush, dude. There, Tom. There are people that love Rush so much that they it's Rush. they love it. And and to be honest with you, like I used to be a Rush hater, and now I'm kind of like a very passive. Like, oh no, I dig I dig some of their songs. There was a there was a guy. The where they all salesmen right before the um, in that Ethel Merman voice. 
right before the guitar solo. <laughs> oh, a salesman. <laughs> just, donkey D and Scooga Doo and Donkey D. That's like every Rush song. There's a dude uh, that uh, Morty, uh, who used to be on the show, uh, he, he's got a buddy that's, that's Jewish, super Jewish. His name's Eton, the Jewish rapper, and he has a Rush yarmulke. So, wow. Yeah, dude. Yeah. All right, People I love I, Rush. I, I think you just heard the last time I'll ever tell that joke. That was, that was <laughs> nah, dude. There's too many people that take. Dude, you can't joke about anything. Everybody's so fucking serious. I mean, isn't that ridiculous? You can't get away with making fun of Rush. <laughs> Fuck those people. It's comedy. Rush can be made fun of. He's got a nasally voice. Um, all right, let's get to let's see, Men of Good Fortune. In this song, Lou tells us how the world is governed by unscrupulous, greedy people, how the wealth is focused in the hands of very few people, indifferent to the other's pain. It tells us about the prevailing cynicism and the sufferings and injustice experienced by the most, the lack of justice and social equality. Uh, this has been played by the Velvet Underground as early as 1966. Uh, there is a live version uh, that can be only heard at the Andy Warhol Museum in Pittsburgh featuring uh, this song. What, do you have it? I got this. Um, oh, wow. It, it, it's these early Velvet Underground, like, club sets. And, in, you know, it's from, what, 69? Yeah, you don't have this. It's consent, literally, unless Adam's lying. No, Adam, are you lying? Are you just making up facts, Adam? For me, what are you doing? I take them at right. the same place everybody else takes them. <laughs> okay, all right, good. All right, well, He's let's just 66. That's from 69. Oh, yeah. all right. Well, we missed it. Well, good, okay. good to know. We're making a trip to Pittsburgh, everybody. All right, I've Carol, been museum. it's a great museum. Great, you bet you have. Yeah, why? Yeah. Well, why what, what I mean, like, is Andy Warhol really the man? Is he that important? Like, did he? I never thought so, but when I lived in Amsterdam. Uh, my best friend was an American guy who was a journalist and he used to do this crazy thing, man. We would we go do. out to, 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 to nightclubs and he would dress up as Andy Warhol. He had a wig and he would do this costume and then he had a Polaroid camera and it was always cool. It was a great way to um, like women would always come around, but he would like just he and he when he would do this, he'd put on his Warhol costume. He would he would be the persona of Andy Warhol all evening. Yeah. And, you know, we'd go, we'd go out to, to nightclubs and, you know, dancing and stuff. And this this he's taking Polaroids and giving them to people. Uh, I found, I thought it was a little tiring at times that he wouldn't break character all throughout the evening. But this guy loved Warhol. And he explained uh, a lot to me. I always thought Warhol was garbage, but... Like if you go to that museum in Pittsburgh, I think the one of the most important things that Andy Warhol did and the, the 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 Polaroids are there was he documented a lot of these trans uh, women. Uh, most of them were probably prostitutes, but like a lot of them were murdered or disappeared. He wrote down their stories. He interviewed them and he would take Polaroids of them and everything. So uh, there's the, this real um, underground New York subset of, of people that, that uh, he captured their lives. Uh, and mm. otherwise they would have been forgotten. And some of them um, have been forgotten and disappeared. Yeah. So, I mean, he did interesting. I and mean, then he did a lot of ignorant shit. Like I remember I had the, the Andy Warhol diaries. Remember that book? It was like this thick. No, no, but it was so... in the 90s or something. And um, I remember I, I had it in my bathroom and I'd read things. And like, 
he was like peeing on canvases. He was really oh, 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 like he would pee on canvases and let the the urine, <laughs> I don't know, marinate the canvas before he he painted on it. He had a lot of weird habits, but you know, I mean, the fact that he produced the Velvet Underground and he kept record labels from interfering with their sound and what they were doing. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, that alone, I think, makes the guy um, memorable. So he broke the rules. He broke the rules. He broke yeah. what? He broke the norm. He broke the rules. Uh, but yeah, I didn't. I, just, I don't really know. You know much interesting about fact him. about Andy Warhol: there was a woman who sh who tried to assassinate him, and he was fucked up forever after this. But the interesting thing is, she was the founder and solo member of this man-hating club. Uh, Adam, can you look up the name of this man-hating club that this yeah, woman dude. founded? And like, it's funny that if you're if if you founded the man-hating club, that you would try and kill a, a man who's kind of feminine and artistic. If you were really a, a man-hater, wouldn't you? Whatever year that was, wouldn't you go for someone who was like? A brute asshole? Yeah. Or, well, or, you know, you, you, I mean, if you're going to make a statement to kill somebody, killing probably one of the coolest guys that's in the, you know, in, in, in the world. I mean, that's that, that's how you get your point across. I mean, I don't know. I, I, Adam, find that out. Also, Tom, I like that you used Adam. You're the first one that was like, Adam. Well, I'm sorry to abuse that privilege because oh, that's your fine. thing. You keep going, you're... Adam, look this up, look this up. So I'm like, hey. I'm not looking it up. I'm not looking it up. That's why Adam's here, dude. He's in the so, fucking, he's in the baseball card shop. What was the so, name of the group? So the Scum Manifesto was by Valerie Solanas, and that was the one who attempted to murder Andy Warhol in 1968. Ah. The Scum Manifesto. Can you find out about the Scum Manifesto while we move on? Do you got any more info on it? Let's see the Scum Manifesto here. The manifesto was little known until Solanas attempted blah, blah, blah. This event brought significant public attention to the manifesto and Solanas herself, while feminist Ty Grace Atkinson uh, but, but, but I'm just trying to get to like get to the meat of it, dude. So so here's the main gist. Solanus begins by presenting a theory of the male as a quote incomplete female who is genetically deficient due to Y chromosome. According to Solanus, this genetic deficiency causes the male to be emotionally limited, egocentric, and incapable of mental passion or genuine interaction. She described okay. males lacking empathy and unable to relate to anything apart from his own physical sensations. Okay, well, I'm joining this group because I 100% agree with her. I agree with it. <laughs> she's, she's not I, wrong. She the, is the, the not wrong. I hate, the th three things I hate most in life are stupidity, bad manners, and aggressive male behavior. Oh. And, and it, it seems to be a boom time for uh, all the three things I hate most in life right now. Did you, did you not go to Woodstock 99 though? Goon era. Dude, Woodstock 99, bro. That was, that woman would have hated that festival. She would have loved Woodstock 94 though. She would have had a really good time at Woodstock 94, but 99, woo wee, that would have been Was that when they were throwing the mud at each other? That was 94 and 99, but in 99 was like Limp Bizkit, Kid Rock. Kid Rock famously has that quote, because uh, this is right around the impeachment where he's like, he's like, yo, I just want to, he's like, I just want to call Mon Monica Lewinsky a hoe and Bill Clinton is a pimp. And like the crowd went nuts. And it's like how times have changed where it's like now you're like Monica, you know, we treated that woman like, 
like shit. Yeah. And and Bill Clinton was a piece of shit. But you yeah. know, imagine what she went through, and you know, and he and he got um exactly. He got, that's he got no hassle for it whatsoever. And that's Woodstock '99 in a nutshell. Hey, what's up? My name's Lurk, and I'm the host of Lamgoat's Van Flip Podcast. Every week, I have in-depth conversations with bands from all over the scene, big and small. We also like to keep our finger on the pulse and showcase up-and-coming bands on the show as well. So come check out Lamgoat's Van Flip Podcast. Um, all right, let me see if there's any other songs. So we, we got the first Caroline. Lou Reed had recorded many variants of this song with the Velvet Underground. It tells us about Caroline's treatment of Jim and is again told from Jim's perspective. Because of that, the song creates the illusion that Caroline is the evildoer in this stormy relationship. Uh, this was released as a single. Oh, I didn't with- know that. Oh, that's awesome. And so I guess Caroline, too, is from her perspective. Yeah, let's hear. Let's well, that's, jump. That's actually, that's that's a pretty genius um uh, songwriting exercise. So let me just double check. I'll, I'll go to Kia. So yeah, here you go. Uh, this is a rewrite. Well, first of all, this is a Caroline two is a rewrite as Stephanie says from the VU. Uh, the song is about Caroline and her disintegrating relationship with the album's male protagonist, Jim. This track picks up the story arc after Jim just abused her mercilessly. Wow. That's a merciless, a, abusing things get worse for Caroline and the album's next two tracks. So I don't want to skip over. Okay. How do you think it feels? How do you think it, I, I really like that song. How do you think it feels when so you do I. for five yeah. days? So I, I, um, is, so I guess in, how does it feel? I, I must've missed that lyric, but I, I guess he abuses her in that song. So yeah, to continue the story and how do you feel this, this is, this is what it says. The song occurs just after Jim discovers that Caroline has been prostituting herself to support her growing amphetamine addiction. The song is posed as a series of a series of searing questions. Here they are. How do you think it feels when all you can say is if only, if only I had a little, if only I had some change, if only, if only, if only. Here, Jim mocks Caroline's drug-seeking behavior when she's desperate for a fix. Wow. Um, Dude, I, as of- I didn't, didn't, you know, I just heard that song- Three times in the last couple of days, and I I I, I missed yeah. that story. So did he's I. Like, and he's mocking her. He's mocking her. Wow. Uh, Adams, if you can pull up like a lyric or like pull up a part from the song that he's like really shitting on her. Do you know what I mean? And while we do that, I just got to say this. This is gonna blow your mind. With all, everything I just said, <laughs> and Fleece Army listeners, with everything I just said, how do you think it feels with the amphetamine addiction and all of that? This was one of the two singles released off of this album. Oh my God, really? <laughs> yeah, dude. I, 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 All right, we, we, got another, we got another new one from Lou Reed, everybody, on WKPRZ. <laughs> Check it out. If you're on amphetamines and struggling right now, you're going to dig this one. It's How Do You Think It Feels by <laughs> Lou Reed. Right after a bad company or yes song or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like bad company. All right, everybody. We're giving away Aerosmith tickets, but first I want to depress everybody. It's um oh Jim catchier than the than the other songs. Which one? How do you think it feels? Here, just put on a little piece of it. Adam, don't even worry about pulling up like a like a sick part. Just put on how do you think it feels so we can we can hear it for a second. How do you think Feels when you're speeding and lonely. Come here, baby. How do you think it feels when all you can say is if only? 
Yeah, this is sad. Meeting of, of the song when you when you know that you know it. I, yeah. I, I thought he was talking about his own drug addiction, you know? No, no nope. he's talking about Caroline, dude. This is a I mean, tumultuous... When you, know that, that, when you know that he's mocking her, it makes it a whole different song. What a cock. What a cock, dude. All right, oh, Jim. So the end of side one. This is what he got there. <laughs> Pulled these off the shelf. Nice. Lou Reed God, going up the fan, public dude. in uh, the complete Lou Reed story, Transformer. All right, anyway. Now, oh, Jim. We've had show and tell with all my Lou, my Lou Reed. No, I love that. I love that. I love show and tell. So this is, so Oh, Jim is where Jim reaches his boiling point with Caroline and her extracurricular activities and talks about beating her. We also get Caroline's perspective at the end with her asking how she could be treated this way. Then you got Caroline too, which we talked about. The kids. Uh, this tells the story of Caroline having her children taken from her by the authorities and features the sounds of children crying for their mother. Lou's then wife, Betty Kronstad, who had been taken by the state from her mother at the age of five, uh, Reed's co-opting of her childhood trauma for the sake of the record story disturbed Kronstad, whose relationship with Reed had already proved the basis for much of this album's content. Ezra's, Ezrin's two children, David and Joshua are the voices crying and calling for their mother on the, on the track kids. The two children scream so loud that they distorted the tape. God. And that's, you know, what's funny because we mentioned that we just mentioned Ezrin. And I think Adam, you pulled this fact up is, let me see if I can find it. Recording this album took a toll on producer Bob Ezrin, who said that the subject matter had him wound so tight one night, he went home and started breaking things. Do you think that we need like that much suffering? Uh, you need to have that kind of suffering? Is it necessary to make art? You know, when I was younger, I used to think that there was something to that, that to make great art, you needed to suffer, but uh, you should evolve in life. I no longer feel that way. But I could see that producer guy going, you know, Lou, Jesus, do, do you got any song about songs about Carousel <laughs> or petting yeah. zoos? But, but also, Tom, and I think you said this when you were younger, when you're younger comics, there is something about that struggle that we all go through. Because I don't know if I know actors put up with shit and musicians put up with shit. But when you're in a band, you're all in a group and you're all suffering together. When you're a comic, you're suffering alone. And there is something about that struggle that we face at the beginning of standup that pushes us. And, and, if, and it's either going to break you or make you because if, because if you can push through that, I was homeless, you know, I couldn't, I, I literally $5 a day to eat and buy cigarettes. You had to choose between cigarettes or fucking food. You always chose cigarettes, of course, <laughs> but, you know, yeah, but and I thought, and I, I thought there was a romanticism to it, you know? Yes. Taking Greyhound, living in Washington Heights. Yeah. Uh, you know, just being broke, struggling. That's where I thought the best jokes would come from. 100%. Oh, there's something. I mean, that's why you get someone uh, like, I'm not going to name names, but some of these huge comics that one, they don't write their material anymore because yeah. they, 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 they're living in mansions worth $200 million. It's like, yeah, that it's like, how, how can you relate to other people that aren't, you know, that are not even in that same, you know, level that you are. But also it's like when, when you're, when you're talking about being poor, you're talking about the struggle. That's, there's more people in this world that are struggling. Well, can relate to struggling or being it's heartbroken than if you success. Or you got a happy love story. Yeah. Uh, I always equate it to like hip hop stars. It's always with, with stand up comedy. It is always seems like, you know, the first, however many albums, 
somebody's coming from the street, they've lived a life, they've got real raw experiences that they're relating through their songs or through jokes if you're a comedian. And then once they get like super successful and make tons of money, uh, it's, uh, yo, dude, who's going to clean my pool is late. You know, there's exceptions, certainly, you know, like uh, Bill Burr just seems to to get funnier and funnier. But but uh, extreme wealth and 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 fame can be uh, detrimental to um, musicians and comedians, I think. Completely. Completely. I I couldn't agree more. (laughs) (laughs) Completely, dude. Um, All right. Let's pick this up. Let's pick this up. What we got? What track we on? Are we doing oh, the kids in the Carolina bed? I, yeah, I have to, we, we, we're at the bed now. I feel like I have to tell this complete story no, did, for the listeners the that are out there. Talk about the kid. Yeah, we, we did the kid. We did the kid. Oh. The kid. Uh, the kid was taken. It's about the kid taken from the the, the fucking. They're taken by the authorities. So okay. the bed. This would be the polar opposite of an uplifting track. Adam, I think you're right. This is from Jim's perspective after finding that Caroline killed herself due to everything that's happened to her. And he's describing the place where she slit her wrist and expressing a mild amount of remorse, but not being sad about either. Yeah, 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 Adam, I want to hear how sad this shit is. This is the place where she lay her head when she went to bed. At night And this is the place Our children were conceived Oh god, alright Alright, we're good We're good That gives you a little taste Yeah, that's all you need That's all you need But I'm not gonna not be a lie to you Imagine you're like a huge Velvet Underground fan You know, you love rock and roll You love Sweet Jane You know, the song Vicious All these like really like really great catchy songs and you buy that in 73 and you go home from the record store and put it on the turntable. <laughs> He's, like, it's so ridiculous. That's so fucking, this is where we conceived our kids. And then she put the razor blade to the thing and went all the way down. That's not it, but I mean, that's fucking sad. And then the next one is called, Sad song. Uh, The reality sets in about Jim's broken marriage and Caroline's suicide in this track as he reflects back upon it. Uh, It's less a song than it is a mood. Profound regret shot through with just enough bitterness uh, to remind us what a dreadful person Caroline must have been to live with. Indeed, it's difficult not to agree with Jim when he finally resolves, I'm going to stop wasting my time. Somebody else would have broken both of her arms. And the Velvet Underground had also recorded an alternate demo of Sad Song, which had much milder lyrics in its original form. And that is the story of Caroline and Jim. Wow. Um, Wow. I'm going to go cry into a pillow now. No, no. You're going to listen to some happy stuff after this. Don't get sad. That's what he wants. That's what Lou Reed wants. I mean, this is, listen, it's it's art. And it's a story. It's a complete story. I, I have to say, you know, it's it's obviously what is going on with, with Lou at the time. I mean, he's, I feel like he's, maybe if he's making all this up, man, he is making, he's, a, this guy. I mean, is for making- a rock opera, this has got, there's more plausibility to, to this rock opera than uh, a, a, a blind teenager who's really good at pinball. Yes, this is real. This is, this is as real as real gets because this story exists. There is somebody 
that lived this. So can you imagine like you're fucking, you're hooked on, your girl's hooked on methamphetamines. You're like, I fucking, she, you know, and then, you know, you put on this record you're like, holy shit. Like, I remember when, like, when I, like I, I heard okay computer for the first time and I was like, I feel like he's writing it for me. So there's somebody yeah. that was like, they wrote this for me. All right, we got some random facts. Here we go. So this album didn't make the cut for the 2020 list. Uh, we will see Lou Reed again with Velvet Underground at 316 and at 293, uh, with Velvet Underground's White Light, uh, White Heat, and then also at 194 with Transformer, 110 with Loaded, and at number 13, Velvet Underground and Nico. Yeah, those are, I mean, I'm excited to dig into some of those. In 2008, a film live performance of the album was well-received. When asked if he felt vindicated, Reed said, for what? I always liked Berlin. He also went on to say, it's a depressing work, but so are, and this is true, A Streetcar Named Desire and Hel- and Hel- a Hamlet. I was going to say Helmet. And uh, yeah, I mean, sad shit, dude. Sad you know, shit, man. there was a movie, there was a movie called House of Sand and Fog. Did you ever see that, Tom? No. It's about a woman who's like an addict who's about to lose her family home that she's been squatting and living because they gave it to her. And she hadn't paid any of her bills and it gets foreclosed on and then bought by this, uh, I want to say like Afghani family played by like Ben Kingsley and some other uh, actress who actually was nominated for an Academy Award for it. And, and it's about this cop that like kind of falls in love with the attic chick and helps her try to get the house back. And in the end, it's just bad. There's nothing. You do not leave that movie feeling good at all, but it's art. And we, and like I said, Requiem for a Dream. When I went to go see that in the theater, dude, I remember there was me, an old dude, and this old couple. And halfway into the movie, the old couple left. And when the movie was over, it was just me and that dude leaving the theater. And I remember I walked up to him and I was like, hey, man, what'd you think? And he was like, don't talk to me. Ugh. And you could just tell it was just heavy. There, there, this, we need these kind of records. We need you know what? Art. I, I never, even at my most balls out partying, I never did heroin. That was the one thing. Yeah, I never ever had any desire to do heroin. And I've been a Louis, I've been a Velvet Underground Lou Reed fan since, you know, I was a late teen. So maybe that was the gift Lou Reed gave to me. Like the song Heroin, what that's like 12, 13 minutes long and it's such a depressing song. Like I, I, I the reason I never had any desire to do it is probably because of Lou Reed and the Velvet Underground any depiction of it always sounded horrendous. Yeah, yeah. So I, think, I, I guess I should be thankful to, to Lou Reed for that. No, 100%. Thank you, Lou. I know you're listening. You're up, you, in the, you're up there. Thank you for everything that you've done. And I um, saw Lou Reed once at the Paramount Theater in Austin, Texas. How was that? It was uh, just spellbinding. How long ago? Like, is it like, what, what era of Lou Reed we getting? 20 years ago, maybe, maybe 99 or 2000, around that period. He played the yeah. South by Southwest Festival, so uh, it would be easy to look up and find out the date. Ooh, Adam, find that out. Find out when he did it, because I want to know the exact date. And everyone was sitting in their seats when the show started, and I ran to the front and put my chest against the stage. Nice. Nice, dude. You got to love a show like that when you're looking up inside your hero's nostrils. <laughs> it's, I, I've seen a couple of shows like that. I like to hang in the back. I'm a back hanger. I like to get now at my age, 41. I, I am too. But for Lou Reed, I, 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 I just became a 14 year old girl. It blows my mind that there's those people that like wait in line for like five hours 
just so they can get to the front. That's a young man's game. Yeah. Also, I feel like they need to uh, position people in the audience at, at general in general admission standings, you know, seats. They need to position them in height. They shouldn't, tall people should not be up front. I agree. And I, I think uh, a, a, an older man is more ruled by his bladder than a younger man. So a younger <laughs> man could remain in the front for hours. For sure, for sure. Uh, Adam said, this album is the equivalent of taking a troublemaker kid and sending him to prison to talk to inmates to straighten him out. Uh, this scares you out of drugs. No, for sure. And then here, uh, Rolling Stone review stated, the album, like we said earlier, we mentioned it, but this is, this is the full review. The album is a disaster, taking the listener into a distorted, degenerate demimonde of paranoia, schizophrenia, degradation, pill-inducing violence, and suicide. There are certain records that are so patently offensive that one wishes to take some kind of physical vengeance on the artist that perpetuates them. Wow. They fucking hated this record. <laughs> they wanted to take vengeance on uh, on Lou. I mean, liked it so much. Yeah, I mean, listen, you know, I get it. I, I mean, this is not this is not something I will listen to ever again. I know that for a fact. Yeah. Um, there's nothing that really sticks stuck out that I that I, I just like. Usually, I get one song that I'm like, yeah, this is fucking great. But I get this. I get why it's on the list. Uh, it's probably the darkest record we've gone through. But here, let's let's find out your uh, your rapid questions. So, Tom, I ask every guest these questions. Uh, I'm excited to hear your answers. Uh, first question: favorite track on the album? I liked Oh Jim, but th but then you know when you because I, I didn't Google the 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 rock opera meaning behind it. I I, I didn't know that Jim was an asshole and um, had. Uh, physically abused Caroline and mocked her drug addiction. But uh, before that, I uh, I would say, oh, Jim. Well, you can stay with that, even though now we know who you are. We know who you, what kind of person you are, Tom, and you are canceled. You are canceled. All right, least favorite song on the record? The Bed. Yeah, The, bed. the, su the Suicide. It, uh, you know, um, yeah, I mean, it's... Uh, it, it it it's a it's a really bleak topic and yeah. um uh i won't go into this now but um coming up on the one year anniversary i witnessed a suicide uh, a year ago uh in november last year and um suicides only transfer the pain so the person's in pain who does it, but it transfers pain to everyone who loved that person, the family, the friends, and even uh, people like me who witnessed it. So um, uh, it, it, uh, like suicide and heroin uh, are, are, are really tough fucking topics that, Fuck. um, yeah, so that's the one I like the least. I, I mean, and, I don't... And, and he's describing her slitting her wrists with a razor blade. It's, yeah. uh, it's, it's, it's tough. It's, it's, it's definitely hard. tough. I got to ask this just so I don't have to go into it. Do you, do you know this person? No. Okay. Thank God. Uh, yeah. Jesus Christ, dude. Fuck. Yeah. All right. It was, a, it was a real brain fuck. Yeah. Oh, I, I could imagine. <laughs> I could imagine, you know, Jesus Christmas. All right. Well then this is much more lighthearted. Uh, what song on this record would you fuck to? Hmm. None of them. <laughs> None of them. None of them. I think I would fuck to. I think I would fuck to. 
what was the word? What was the real sad one that we played the clip of, Adam? The how does it feel? How does it feel? I fucked up. How does it feel? Yeah. yeah, but then he's mocking her drug addiction. It's uh... I'm not listen. I'm not listening to the lyrics. I'm fucking, bro. I'm fucking. I just like I like it's slowest. It's like you know, it's it's heart wrenching. That's what it's like having sex with me. It's depressing. It's heart wrenching. It's amphetamines. <laughs> it's amphetamine addiction. And last question: uh, Does this deserve to be on the 500 greatest albums list? And if so, why? I, you know what? I'm a huge Lou Reed fan and I love Lou Reed, but this would not be on my top 500 albums. So you don't think so? Okay. Uh, I would say no. And I'm, and I'm, and like I said, you know, I mean, I am a devoted devoted Lou Reed uh, lover. And, um, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't put this one on my top 500. You know, I, 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 I kind of, I, I think I agree with you. I'm not saying I kind of, I do agree with you. I, I think that, you know, I, I would love to know why this, how many votes this got to be on the list. And I see why it was left off. I understand it. I, I dig everything that he's telling. I dig the story. I love that it's a complete and, you know, an ultimate uh, rock opera. But, you know, I don't get it. And uh, I, we're not shitting on it, people that are fans of Lou Reed. We're not shitting on it. We appreciate it. We understand it. I just think that Tears for Fears fucking songs <laughs> from the big chair could have been on here instead. Shout. Let it all out. Oh, and Adam looked up. It was 2008 is when I saw uh, Lou Reed in Austin at the South by Southwest Festival. Fuck, Thank man. you for looking that up, Adam. Oh, Adam rules. Uh, Tom, this was great. Promote away. What do you got to promote? Uh, I came out with a um, an, an album uh, called The Hunky Motherland. I recorded it in England uh, in 2019. Uh, it's available on vinyl, and it's my, my first vinyl record I ever made because I'm, I'm obsessed with vinyl. So I'm really proud of it, and um, you can only get it by writing me directly on uh, a DM on Instagram or Twitter. Nice, nice. And it's the only thing I use, I hate Twitter. Uh, I avoid it, so. Yeah, we all do, but you know. It's it's the only way that you can get a direct line to famous people and you can mm. tell them to go fuck themselves because that's what people use it for. Um, everybody, get the record. DM Tom, get the record. He's one of the greats. Uh, Tom, this was so much fun. Even Not talking about... Awesome, man. I'm really glad we, 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 we spent the day talking about Lou Reed. I love it. I love it. Um, thank you, brother. What did I tell you? What did I tell you? The one and only Tom Rhodes. Little Tommy Rhodes. Uh, Follow him on all social media at underscore Tom Rhodes. For all things Tom, go to his website, TomRhodes.net. Listen to his podcast, Tom Rhodes Radio, and get his record by DMing him on Soch. Get the record, get the record, get the record. For listener shout out, I want to give one up to... At Wooden Beard Nerd. Andy, I love you. He is a fan of the show. He's a fan of mine. And he's sending me a Gilbert Arenas jersey in the mail from listening to this podcast. So I fucking love you, Andy. At Wooden Beard Nerd. W O O D E N B E A R D N E R D. He's the man. We love him. Thank you, brother. Thank you for the Gilbert Arenas jersey. And for new music, we've got. Listener submitted Jameson Rawlings. It's his band, The Occasional Moonlight, 
which he says is hugely influenced by Lou Reed. And you're listening to the song Isolation. And you can find links to the music on our website, the500podcast.com. So guys, be like Jameson. Listen to The Occasional Moonlight. They're great. I love this song. I fucking love it. I love it. I love it. And if you want your music played on the 500, send your songs to 500podcast at gmail.com. Put the album and artist that influenced you in the subject line. And next week, we got Meatloaf Week as we're going through his 1977 phenomenal record, Bad Out of Hell. Girl, we need it. We fucking need it after Berlin. Do your homework. But the weight of the air Makes you feel like you're drowned Our Dirty footprints begin to fade And people get paid to look pretty and fake While the rest are stuck hanging their hopes On the people they meet and velvet ropes It's not long before they're broken to the cold And there just ain't no place in this world for them anymore up to leave I didn't wake you up see it don't matter if I'm there or not wasn't looking for love I just wanted a friend someone I could talk to and confide in I've spent my life running Got a bit more to do Might quit this whole thing And run back to you My philosophy changes Every day Just depends what I see What I hear people say People walk by Maybe then They won't know I'm alive Just met with suspicion Indifference, disdain One day without you Got bad things on the brain Might walk to the ocean Throw myself in just take the plunge and decide not to swim God, let me off this emotional swing And let me just see what tomorrow will bring 
shore Cause there just ain't no place in this world For us anymore That's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Well, hey, friends, my name is Zach Lupiton. You may know me from the band Dust Bowl Revival, but I also host a music discovery podcast called The Show on the Road. For the last five seasons, I've been able to dive deep and have intimate chats with folks like the Lumineers, Andy DeFranco, Wolfpack, Keb Moe, Lake Street Dive, Bela Fleck, and more. So guess what? After 150 conversations with some of my favorite songwriters from around the world, we are bringing brand new episodes to the Osiris Network. New interviews and intimate acoustic performances will be coming at you this summer. And which episodes are coming next, you ask? I am Zach Goody, the lead singer for the band Smash Mouth. Our band is called Milky Chance. We are based in Berlin. My name is David Shaw. I sing and write songs with my band, The Revivalists. Trust me, these conversations go some wild places. So subscribe to the show on the road on Osiris, and we'll see you soon. Next Chapter Podcasts.